Hello, and welcome to Heart Failure Beat, a podcast brought to you by the Heart Failure Society of America and created especially for those of you treating heart failure in institutions around the world. I'm Dr. Kevin Shaw. I'm a heart failure transplant cardiologist from California based out of the University of Utah, and I'm an active member of the HFSA. I'm very excited to take the reins of hosting duties for this podcast. My goal is to have a conversation with other people in the heart failure community about the things that we live and see on a daily basis. I do appreciate you taking the time to tune in. On today's episode, we are going to take a look at 2020 and COVID-19. We want to reflect on the past year, what happened with the pandemic and the context of heart failure, and moreover, what lessons have we brought with us into this year? I'm joined today by two clinicians who really are experts in this area. Dr. Khadija Brethit, the Assistant Professor of Medicine in the Division of Cardiology and Advanced Heart Failure and Transplant at the University of Arizona Sarver Heart Center, who does have an interest in disparities in heart failure treatment and care. And with Dr. Mitch Sotka, a heart failure and transplant cardiologist from Inova Heart Team. Dr. Sotka is the Chief of Heart Failure at, at Inova Heart and Vascular Institute, and he has served as a chair of the HFSA Early Career Community and as a co-chair of the Digital Health Working Group with the Heart Failure Collaboratory. Mitch and Khadija, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Of course. So, Khadija, let's start with you. If we rewind back to early 2020, when and how did COVID-19 really begin to disrupt your day-to-day practice? I would say probably around March or April is when we began to see a change in what was happening to your patients and our community and a need to change our clinical practice. I think that many of us thought that maybe this was going to be an isolated or short event that may not even reach America, similar to the extent of other diseases that have occurred in the past several years. But this was something different. This is a pandemic that impacted all of us and impacted all of us differently. And I think that this remains an issue as we consider what are the next best steps to do to help improve care for all people. And I know we'll discuss more of that as we go further, but there are major issues that remain to be addressed in terms of getting appropriate care, getting vaccines, and making sure that our heart failure patients are protected. Sure. Mitch, how about you? If you kind of rewind to back in 2020, when did things really start sort of picking up and what observations did you notice? Yeah, so I I think, and this is kind of broadly in this country, March was the time when we all first felt the impact. We all first started canceling outpatient clinics and transitioning to telemedicine, which we're going to talk about. But I think we were just reviewing our telemedicine volumes. um, And you can see the kind of double peak that's happened in the kind of our region of the country overall with our telemedicine usage. So March was when we first started kind of implementing telemedicine, which was before this a a really kind of a rare event. And then it peaked in April, May, and then had declined. And then actually now it's back on the rise again in our area. And I think that that's really a marker of kind of the impact both for our kind of outpatient services, as well as for patients' desire and willingness to come into the hospital and have both normal sort of outpatient clinic visits, as well as testing, both routine and invasive testing, and coming into the hospital even when they're very sick. We saw this pattern kind of throughout our care. Yeah, I I agree. And I'm glad you brought up the telehealth aspect of things. I'm I'm curious, Mitch, what sort of 
responses did you see from your patients early on as you were transitioning from what they were used to, probably traditional clinic visits in person? How did patients respond early on to even now? How have they felt about telehealth? So I would say in general, for most of our elderly or patients or patients with comorbidities, getting to the hospital is hard, particularly if they don't have transportation, particularly if they don't have the socioeconomic means to get there, even though we live, we are situated 20 minutes from most of our patients are within that distance. And so most of our patients have been very excited about the possibility of not actually physically having to come see me. And I think that that has, in general, was in the beginning, very exciting for patients. And so we found as we've progressed through this that some patients really just can't manage a telemedicine visit, whether that be by video or by telephone. There are some patients who just don't have the means. I would say that actually everybody has the technology. So none of our patients have really lacked the technology to actually perform a video visit, whether that's on their phone or their tablet or just their computer. But the ability to actually set that up, which I think most of us find relatively straightforward on on Zoom or other platforms, has really been difficult for some of my patients. And it's not been dependent on age. So, I mean, this morning, for instance, I saw two of my 85 to 90-year-olds, and they are very facile. It's more just kind of some patients just find it very difficult. And those patients, it's been tough. And we've had to actually transition to have them coming back into the hospital. But I think for most patients, it has been a welcome change. And it's, it's likely something that, you know, we didn't see go away completely in September, October, November when the levels were relatively low, but patients still wanted to maintain a, a telemedicine visit instead of coming in. Yeah, I think we've seen a similar experience in Utah. One aspect that's unique here about delivery of care is we do serve a very rural population. So we have patients that previously would drive very, very long distances to come see us. And a lot of them were doing just fine. So there wasn't much to change in terms of their medications or therapies. And a lot of patients have had similar experiences here where I think it's a welcome change to not have to drive so many hours to come see their doctor if they're feeling fine. Khadija, how how has it been on your end in terms of telemedicine, telehealth, and with your heart failure patients? So I've changed exclusively to telemedicine for my patients, and they've overwhelmingly been supportive of this because it increases the amount of flexibility. We're the second largest city in the state of Arizona, and so our patients come from different locations and different distances to see us. So they appreciate the flexibility and being able to communicate with their physician. And we do also offer the opportunity to be seen in person if you like. I've encountered, and I think my other colleagues would attest to this, that there's still some difficulty with getting access to telemedicine. As you may know, there's a large proportion of even the entire U.S. that does not have access to internet, to broadband internet, does not necessarily even have access to a smartphone, which are some things that we take for granted. And that makes it much more difficult to get an appropriate exam and to provide the best form of heart failure and heart transplant treatment. I think that this has helped raise awareness for more of the disparities that are existence with things like access to internet. And I would hope that as the administration change, that policies allow for broader access to these things, which can help improve cardiovascular care for our patients. 
I completely agree. It's almost created another area of disparities that previously many of us probably didn't recognize existed, right? Because patients were typically coming to see us in person. And now you're right, whether it's the ability to use a smartphone or a platform or frankly, being comfortable with this technology. I've had young patients and old patients that many of them are are traditional and they want to see their doctor in person. And there's something about coming into the clinic. And I think it will be interesting to see what happens this year in terms of what our patients really ask of us moving forward after a full year of virtual visits. Mitch, have you noticed, particularly in the either in the LVAD or the transplant population that you're taking care of, have there been any sort of unique challenges that have come with COVID-19 in terms of exposure or listing or what's been your experience, your team's experience? Sure. So that's a very specialized population, and I think they actually provide different issues. So I'll start with the transplant population. I think across the continuum, the, the transplant population we've seen has been when they have been exposed and infected, have been sicker. We've had kind of this long duration of illness, this inability to clear the infection. I would say that from a programmatic standpoint, we did shut down our transplantation for two months in the middle of it. And that was a concern for our patients who are sick and on the wait list. Following that, we you know, had a robust transplant pickup after that, but that was a concern for them. And, and so we have not shut down again but been relatively conservative in our organ selection after that to try to really preserve beds in our hospital when it's become very tight. I mean, we like many hospitals in the country, we've been limited on our elective procedures at various points during the pandemic. And I would say that although we were active in, in patients who were listed high and in the hospital and very ill, we really stopped doing kind of the elective transplant for the patients who were stable and outpatients because we just didn't have ICU beds for a, a long period of time. I think. Then with transplant, finally, now that's when we have the vaccine, it's been an ongoing discussion about should they get it, should they not. We have firmly come down on the side of, yes, everyone should get it, and we recommend it to all of our transplant patients. And I want to say that again here, that the benefit and the potential benefit clearly outweighs the potential risk here, and we recommend it to all of our transplant patients. And, And I would say that I've been setting aside really, you know, five minutes of every visit to really make sure that we discuss this with every transplant patient who comes in to make sure that there is no lack of clarity on that on that topic. I think with the LVAD population, we had long been struggling with how to best manage our LVAD patients without making them come into the hospital. Whereas transplant patients, you can really do a, a virtual visit for the majority of them uh, in the same way that you can with a patient that has heart failure. Patients with LVADs are a different kind of thing that you're dealing with, and it's mainly deal with blood pressure checking. That becomes very difficult. And so we have been actually working to get our patient population home Dopplers if they desired for years, and it had never been able to be happened, mainly, mainly for financial concerns because you have to provide the, the devices to check. But actually, the pandemic has spurred us to actually provide that to all of our patients who are willing to have it. We got uh, basically gift funds from some of our previous patients uh, who were able to provide that and we can provide it to our patients. So we're in the process of doing that so that we can provide these telehealth services to all of our patients. I would say that our LVAD volume did also drop during the pandemic like everything did. Sure, sure. Khadija, how about you? What's been your experience with these sort of unique patient populations? Well, it's been difficult because as many may know, in Arizona, we currently have the highest per capita rate of COVID in the world. 
And so changes are needed to be put in place to help protect our patients. And so currently right now we're on hold with elective procedures. We're trying to encourage virtual visits for our routine patient care and for things that are annual follow-up where they need to come in for their just routine right left biopsy we're trying to postpone that as well and just try to keep good contact with them to see if there are any development of symptoms because our patients are developing COVID and we're doing our best to manage them as well as we can outpatient and to only reserve for an inpatient admission when the disease is severe enough or they're having some other ailment that warrants admission because it's our hospitals are full. It's full with COVID and we still have yet to see the full extent of what this is going to have on non-COVID related diseases because of fear of even having patients go to the hospital because they've had patients that need to be in for other reasons that are fearful that don't want to risk it because they know COVID's out there. They know it's a real risk. And we're, we're seeing even now with more data showing and I think one of the largest data sets from about a month or so ago from Premier, over a million patients looking at what a 25% mortality rate in the setting of an acute mission for heart failure corresponding with COVID. And we, we could probably guess some of us knowing that even with a heart failure mission in the setting of flu, it's associated with worse outcomes. So sure, but that's really bad. And I think that we have to, especially as physicians, physician scientists, to use our voices to allow for the public to know that this is serious. This is real. This is not a joke. This is not the flu. Yes, you need to get your vaccine. Sign up to get your vaccine as soon as it's available, but still be vigilant. Maintain social distance. Wear a mask. Avoid family gatherings. Avoid traveling. And it's hard, and I I get that, especially when we've been locked up for, we're approaching almost a year of dealing with this and beyond what many have never experienced in their lives before. But I urge and encourage anyone that's listening to remain vigilant and know that we're going to work through this, I think, one step at a time. It is compounded by many other issues with social justice that that we're experiencing all over the country right now, and especially in this past week with understanding where, where's our country headed. And again, I say remain vigilant, remain hopeful, use your voice. I, I, I'm glad you brought that up. And I, I do think it's important for physicians to really be vocal about some of these issues and not be ambiguous about these types of issues when it comes to taking the vaccine, when it comes to social distancing, because Personally, I do feel like it's it's become part of our responsibility during a time when there is a lot of misinformation out there. Khadija, I want to go back a little bit. We kind of touched on disparities, and you've obviously done a lot of impactful work, particularly in the African-American community. What have we learned with respect to the pandemic in terms of what it's revealed in terms of disparities within these communities? I think, if anything, it's really illuminated what many of us have known for a long time. But now there's video images. Now you can see it on the TV. Now it's on the news every day. And you're recognizing, wow, something's not fair about this. Something's not right about this. How can we allow for this to happen? And I'm encouraged by the change in the momentum, by the generational support of people to try to make the policy changes, try to make the institutional changes so that we can start moving forward towards equity. 
if one thing I'd say that has been revealed is that these disparities are getting worse, not better. And there, there's a possibility of reaching a point of no return. And we have to decide, are we going to be willing to potentially lose privilege, get uncomfortable to make the changes that are necessary so that your fellow brother or sister can have a fighting chance. And we have to consider this from a medical standpoint as well, because everyone knows now we're beyond the standpoint where it's not appropriate for a physician to be political. We, we, we can't live that way anymore. And we have to be willing to speak up about what patients need and That really digs at things like structural inequalities, structural racism, bias, issues that have often been kind of kept under the rug. It's uncomfortable. And you don't want to say that it's not you or I don't see color. But we we live in color. We live in a world where people have different opportunities and based upon their social circumstances, don't have an equal chance for equitable cardiovascular health. And we have to be willing to take the stance to change the policies, to change the rules so that everyone gets an opportunity to get their heart failure medications, to get a heart transplant. And I think that we're moving in that direction. Yeah, it it really is remarkable what, how much a stressor like we've gone through as a country with this pandemic can really show you what's been going on for a long time and really reveal what has been going on for people that have been paying attention for a long time. Mitch, do you have any any thoughts on that issue? I think Khadija's choice of illuminating is appropriate. I think, like you said, this is not new. This is not something that is recent. This has been long festering underneath everything, and the pandemic has exposed uh, these terrible inequalities in the fabric of our society. My personal focus has been on the financial inequalities and the lack of discussion of finances with our patients when we're choosing medications, discussing treatments, discussing diagnostics. It is something that we literally are not trained to do and has actually been removed from most training. And and in many systems, we are separated from the financial impacts of our decisions on patients, meaning when we choose a medication, when we have to go through prior authorization. And so that's been my personal fight in this system. But I think all of these things are intensely intertwined. And, and again, the choice of the word illuminating what was going on and, and really exposing this by the pandemic is, is the key. And now we all need to come together to make it better. I'm curious. I want to learn a little bit more because I find this really hard myself, the, the issue of the cost of whatever recommendation we're going to make. Many times, whether it's a medication or a device or something as significant as a left ventricular assist device or a heart transplant, when it comes to the actual cost that's going to come to the patient, there are times I find it really difficult to figure out what that actually is. And it would be naive to assume that that's not a giant part of the decision-making when we are making recommendations about what may help them live long or feel better. And what's been your experience in that space? I think that's a very interesting area. I think that it's important to recognize that when we're thinking about advanced heart therapies, LVAD and transplant, we actually have the, the luxury of having huge teams of people who are heavily invested in making these things happen. And so I think that we all have financial counselors as part of our evaluation team that, that are part of that process of instructing patients on 
how much this is going to cost them, what their insurance is going to pay for, what the possible financial implications are of the long list of medications they're going to have to take afterwards, particularly if you're a program who is using hepatitis C NAP positive hearts, the transplant, the cost of those medications can in some cases be rather extraordinary. And then also kind of old standbys such as Celsep are, are particularly expensive or, or Valganzyclovir, particularly expensive to some patients. I think where this is actually a much broader problem is within the non-VAD transplant population. If you're thinking about how much does an echocardiogram cost? How much does secubitril valsartan cost? How much does the most expensive drug ever used to famitis cost? And I think that this is where it really is a problem and has been a problem before this and will be a problem after this. I think, you know, in the setting of COVID, right, there has been enough light shown on this that the vaccine is free, that testing should be free in certain circumstances. It, it practically is not because of the difficulty getting it. But the vaccine in all cases right now is now free. And so that is a, a huge victory for really, I think, what many of us would like to see in this country, which is that medicine and, and medical care should be given to everybody as part of their kind of social contract of participating in this country. And I think we see that with the vaccine, and maybe that will give people a taste of what could be, which is that there is an overarching promise to protect people, and possibly that will be taken forward. I think all other steps that we talk about, such as digital prior authorization, pricing in the clinic, so you can have that discussion with patients, that's all probably little fixes that probably will not fix the bigger system. Sure. No, those are great points. I, uh, you brought up the vaccine. Even before we started recording, we started talking about our own experiences with the vaccine. What sort of feelings have you experienced as you've either gone through it or in terms of a lot of people have described sort of a light at the end of the tunnel or new hope that's being infused? And right now, you know, we're recording this in January and there's still, for most places, it's very early in the administration, still mostly healthcare workers and quote unquote frontline workers. But at least on, on your end, Khadija, what, what has sort of changed from either your perspective or what have you noticed from your patient's perspective as frankly something that if you rewind four or five months ago, I don't think any of us thought this was going to be in the forefront, a vaccine that was going to help us get out of this. So now that we're here, what are you noticing and what are you feeling? I think there's a lot of optimism as well as a lot of concern. There's been excellent demonstration of efficacy with this medication, which is helpful. But there are major concerns with access and who's getting it, when are they getting it, how are they getting it. And there's also concern about trust, where there's some that still don't trust it, still aren't quite sure about what can be done. And I think that's an opportunity for us as physicians, physician scientists to get out there and spread the word. But there's also the population that doesn't get vaccines anytime, anywhere, of which we know with this growing anti-vaxxer group and mission that's real because we know that a large proportion of people need to be vaccinated before we can move ahead through this pandemic. And we have to take extreme care to make sure that we're not putting our most vulnerable people at continued risk by not offering them the vaccine when they need it, by not waiting until how many more have died until they can get access to it. So I'm hopeful for an incoming administration to implement policies and plans to speed up the access to this vaccine and to make sure that those 
again, they're in the most vulnerable situations, get access to it first and not providing access based upon your hierarchy or hierarchical level in the social ladder, which we know is already ongoing and continues to occur. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Mitch, from your end, how has receiving the vaccine sort of changed your perspective? And what have you been hearing from your patients in terms of either questions about it or relying upon you potentially to provide some guidance? Because like we talked about earlier, there's this last year, there's been misinformation about so many things. And this is one of the issues. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's definite mistrust of the vaccine and and the process through which it was created. I think that this is why I, I said earlier, I spend, I dedicate every visit some time to discussing the vaccine and that recommending that my patients should get it, whether or not they bring it up. I will say that most patients bring it up and our office has really been suffering from a deluge of calls from all of our patients asking, you know, should I get it? Where do I get it? When can I get it? And so we actually had to put out a a mass distribution messaging to all of our patients to really just protect the staff from getting called all the time saying that, yes, you should get it. We don't know how, we don't know when. And that's that's really been the the take-home point. I will say that Virginia actually in, in our county is actually now moving forward with 1B vaccinations. We have vaccinated essentially our entire medical system at this point. We were kind of on the forefront of making that happen, which was a, a luxury, I, I must admit. And, you know, I've received my second dose. I received it a week and a half ago. So we were really at the beginning of kind of implementing that. And it is a luxury. I would say that there's very little feeling of relief at this point among us who've been vaccinated because we all go home to families who have not been vaccinated. We all go home to grandparents of our children and and others who are terrified of the disease and remain terrified and will not be vaccinated for a while because we really don't have the, the ability to vaccinate everybody. And we still, as we see throughout the country, we still see these these spiking infection rates and, and Virginia is no exception. So I would say it's going to take some time. I would say that my personal protection offers me little kind of solace and that we really need to do better as a, as a country in terms of rolling this out. And I would say that while I am hopeful, as Khadija said, I am concerned that unless things really change, and I hope that they will after January 20th, that you know our current rate of vaccination will lead us to get everyone vaccinated in 2022. And that's just too far away. Yeah, I agree. I'm scheduled to get receive my second dose of the vaccine this afternoon. And I can tell you after the first dose, I felt a giant combination of hopeful. I also felt very privileged and grateful. This, Like I said, if you rewind a few months ago, this never felt like something that was going to be a potential intervention that could help turn this country around. And like you guys have both said, now we're really at the stage of producing enough distributing it in an equitable fashion and making sure our patients and the community in general really have some trust in this because it seems to me it's going to be beyond the public health interventions, one of the most important steps to make 2021 a lot better than 2020. With that, I do want to, I want to ask both of you, actually, if you reflect on the last year, you know, anytime you go through something difficult, there's hopefully a silver lining and there's probably some growth that comes with it. And what I would ask, and we can start with Khadija, if you think about professionally and even personally, what positives or silver linings have come from a really challenging year for everyone, for you, either on a personal level or a professional level? I'll start with the greatest pain. And, I, and I'll say that that is a combination of seeing so many people die from a preventable disease 
as well as seeing the repetitive imagery of social injustice enacted against people of color in this nation. It was an incredibly painful time. And I'd say the silver lining in all of this, again, is that multiple people have been able to visually see what's happening to others that they may have not been able to see due to their privilege or due to their own experiences that have been able to join the movement to say that we're not, this is not acceptable. The status quo no longer works for us. We are going to work together to try to change the policies, the structure, the culture that support these inequities and lead to change in equity and from the range of health to education to housing and economics. That is the most encouraging thing I'd say that I've seen over the still painful year, two years, that there's hope and that there are more that are going to join this mission. That's great. That's great. Mitch, what, what about you? What do you think, either on a personal level or professionally, what you've experienced in the past year, what positives or silver linings have come from everything that's, that's happened? Yeah, and I want to reiterate what Khadija just said about the painfulness of this year and people dying and but I, I do think that the the exposure of of all of the injustice in, in this country and and worldwide has been, I think, good for the system and good for the for everyone to see and 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 has built camaraderie around, I think, improving things for a lot of people. I think you know if we just focus medically, I think the embrace of digital technologies and the embrace of telemedicine is a good thing. You look at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services is going to continue to support that and reimburse that at, at kind of a full level, which I think is only good for patients. Uh, it really allows them to seek care in a variety of different ways. And it's up to us to kind of expand the ability to do that now that we're being kind of facilitated from a financial standpoint, which we all understand is what drives all of our behavior as health systems. I think that if the only thing I want to say is that I, I think this has really shown that small changes and increase in fear has really led people not to seek care. And, and so, as Khadija mentioned, I haven't seen so many post-heart attack VSDs or ventricular septal defects that I've seen this year. I mean, just people who are sitting at home dying and, and unwilling to come in because they're so scared of getting coronavirus. And I think that it is going to be this, this ongoing balance that we're really going to have to struggle with to make sure that our patients get vaccinated, but they also kind of feel comfortable enough with our systems to come in and seek care and that we can make it a safe place and a place that they can get to. And so I think that we've all recognized that that's where we need to go. And I think there's a momentum moving in that direction, but I think realistically there's a long way to go in a lot of these areas. Yeah, I completely agree. I think at least for me in the last year, I've learned a lot in terms of everything you guys mentioned already in terms of disparities but also I've, I have gained a, a lot of appreciation for so many things a lot of us took for granted and just the fact that most of us have been isolated or locked up this year and a lot of the simple things like seeing family members, traveling, eating at a restaurant, having a conversation in person and not like this, going to meetings, all of the things that we used to do regularly that we obviously have all put on pause for the right reasons. It's it, My hope is that once we're on the better side of this, we really all don't take those things for granted. And we do have a newfound appreciation for all of the real simple things in life. I do want to give you both either just a last chance to mention anything that you want, particularly to the heart failure community or to the patients that may be listening. Any last thoughts with respect to COVID-19 
and everything that's going to happen moving forward this year. Khadija, we can start with you. Sure. I'd say be encouraged. We don't know when this is going to end. Continue to be vigilant in what you're doing. Get your vaccine. Encourage your patients and your friends, even other people that will look to you for answers for what to do during this time, because this is the most opportune time to share your voice, share your knowledge and your experience so that collectively we can change the outcomes in our country. That's great. That's great. Mitch, any last thoughts? Yeah, I'll just stick with the key ones. Get your vaccine, get whatever vaccine you get offered, wear a mask, continue to wash your hands and continue to stay away from people until everyone has their vaccine. Right on. (laughs) I couldn't agree more. Listen, thank you both for taking the time today. I genuinely appreciate it. It was great to talk to you both today. And again, thank you all for listening. It was great having a conversation with both Mitch and Khadija today. For more information on changes, advances, late-breaking news in the field of heart failure care, make sure to subscribe to the podcast or visit hfsa.org forward slash heart failure beat to learn about all of the podcasts related to the HFSA. To all of our listeners, thank you for taking time out of your day. Stay safe and take care.